Welcome to All Ears, the official podcast of the Cedar Rapids Colonels, High A affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. I'm your host, Chris Kleinon Schultz, the voice of the Cedar Rapids Colonels. On this podcast, I will interview past and present Cedar Rapids baseball influencers, including players, managers, and executives. Final head coach of the Norway Tigers, the 1991 state champions, Kent Stock. Thank you so much for joining us on All Ears, the official podcast of the Cedar Rapids Colonels. Chris, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to our discussion. It should be awesome. An obvious place to start with someone like you is the St. Louis Cardinals. Why was that your team growing up? I tell you what, I, I got goosebumps you just saying the words St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, born and raised in Ankeny, Iowa. You know, right here in Iowa, we don't have a professional baseball team in Iowa, minor leagues. You know, I, I was born and raised on the Des Moines Oaks, you know, Iowa Oaks. Uh, when I was a kid, dad would take me down to Sec Taylor Stadium and, and I got to see Vita Blue pitch, you know, Sal Bando, Joe Rudy, uh, Dick Green. It was amazing, you know. So I, I was born, born and raised loving baseball. But my dad, he was uh, a preacher's kid. His dad, he was born in North North Central Iowa. And my dad's dad, my grandpa Stock, was a Minnesota Twins fan. But for some reason, my dad fell in love with Stan Musial and became a Cardinals fan. So I remember as a kid, dad taking me to Cardinals games. You know, my idol was Bob Gibson. My childhood dream was I was going to, you know, get drafted and play professional baseball play, for Bob Gibson and the St. Louis Cardinals when I got out of high school. You know, the very first game I remember going to was in 1971. My dad was a teacher in the Des Moines School District. I had an older sister, younger brother. My dad comes banging around the doors and he says, come on, everybody get up. Bob Gibson's pitching tonight. We're going to St. Louis. We get in our little Volkswagen Beagle, uh, Beetle and we drive to St. Louis. We get down there. We're going to make it a day trip. We get down there and we get into Bush Stadium for the first time in my life. I'm 10 years old and I was in heaven. This was my first, you know, future place of employment. So, you know, I was like, this is a great place to be. All of a sudden, I look up at my dad and my dad had this crushed look on his face. And I said, Dad, what's the matter? He goes, Bob Gibson's been scratched from the lineup. He's not pitching tonight. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I think my dad saw the disappointment in my face and he finally he looks, he said, you know what? He's pitch. He's pitching tomorrow night. We'll watch this game. We'll find a hotel and we'll go see Bob Gibson pitch tomorrow night. So after the game, we go around St. Louis, you know, I'm 10 years old. Seemed like we stopped at a hundred hotels. We maybe stopped at five, but dad kept coming out saying, you know, there's no hotel room. There's no vacancy. So we ended up sleeping on our Volkswagen Beetle in a Howard Johnson's parking lot with my little brother in the cubby hole in the back, you know, and, and the next night we saw Bob Gibson win his 200th game. You know, how crazy is that? I mean, that was just amazing. And I've been in love ever since, you know, it's just something that as a Cardinal fan, it's amazing. I mean, I could tell you two other Bush stadium stories, you know, um, seat cushion night in 1987, best friend of mine from college, Mark Danker. We went down to, uh, St. Louis to a Cardinals game. My favorite player at that time was Tommy Herr, you know, and so the games, there's a terrible call at third base that they're playing the Mets and it was seat cushion night. All of a sudden people started throwing seat cushions out, yelling at the umpires and screaming and the announcer gets on, you know, probably somebody like you gets on and says, if you keep throwing seat cushions, the game's forfeited, you know, so it calmed down, ends up being tied in the bottom of the 10th inning. Ozzie Smith got on, got a base hit. Tommy Herr steps up, hits a walk-off home run to win the game. And the crowd went nuts and seat cushions are flying everywhere throughout the stadium. So, you know, I, I'm just a huge saint. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 59 years old and I'm still a kid in the candy store when I walk into Bush Stadium. You know, when we talk to people about sounds of the game, we're thinking more about the actual sound of an actual game, whether it's the crack of the bat or ping of the bat, depending on when you're going wood versus metal. But I'm also biased on the broadcasting side to know that, you know, 
the voices of the teams become a big part of the sounds of the game. How big was KMOX and all the great broadcasters there in terms of your love of Cardinals baseball? Uh, you know, you you look at the history of, of my history of love of the game back in the you know, mid late sixties into the seventies, we got the game of the week. So, you know, it was Kurt Gowdy and Tony Kubek that, you know, I get to see them, some of the eight great broadcasters, but KMOX, my dad and I would sit back in the back room of our small house. And at nine o'clock clear channel came through and we could get KMOX. You know, I was blessed with the greatest voice in all of baseball, in my opinion, uh, Jack Buck, you know, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, you know, from now it's Mike Shannon and John Rooney. You know, you got Joe Buck who called the great game six of the 2011 World Series. We'll see you tomorrow night. You know, I'm sure, you know, your passion is, is radio calling games. As a young guy, I was that guy. I was the one riding around in cars and even as an adult, you know, just replaying Jack Buck calls. You know, I can still tell you, you know, Smith, Corks went in the right. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. The Cardinals have won the game three to two on a home run by the Wizard. So I would drive around just quoting, you know, Jack Buck lines, you know, and and I had that love of, of the radio. And to this day, I still listen to baseball on radio. So obviously we've clearly established just a couple questions in how big of a baseball guy you are. And before you eventually get to Norway and help coach that baseball program, you're coaching volleyball at Belle Plaine. How did you end up in that position? Oh my gosh. You know, first of all, I, I 1980 graduated from Ankeny high school. My goal and dream as a young kid, I wanted to be a pro baseball player. I wasn't drafted. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. All of a sudden I'm like summer after my senior year, I had no idea what I was going to do guy by the name of Jim Hayden from Waldorf College in in Forest City. I think he's born and raised in Cedar Rapids, but he called me at Waldorf was a junior college. He said, Kent, seeing you play baseball this summer, I want to offer you a scholarship. I'll give you $200 a year to come play baseball at Waldorf. I thought, oh man, I'm rich. $200 a year? So I go off to Waldorf. Great baseball there in Waldorf. We had a lot of Cedar Rapids guys on the on the team, Lynn Peterson, you know, Scott Ewart, Corky Summers, tons of guys from that late 70s era that went to Waldorf. We were ranked 13th in the nation. And I had a great two years there and hoping to get drafted after two years. Well, I wasn't. So finally, for the first time in my life, made an educationally sound decision. I said, I'm gonna transfer to Luther College, division three school, no athletic scholarships, but I'll go there and play baseball. And I wanna become a teacher and a coach. You know, I thought all the mentors in my life were my teachers, they were my coaches. So I thought no better way to pay them back than to become a teacher and a coach. So I thought I'll get my high school business education teaching certificate, become a baseball coach, boom, ready. Well, that summer I moved back home after I graduated from Luther and my dad was teaching at Des Moines East High School, the East Scarlet, and they had an assistant baseball coaching position open. So I coached the the high school assistant varsity baseball coach that summer. And my very first interview was in Parkersburg, Iowa. Many of you have, you've heard of Parkersburg, late coach Ed Thomas. Yep. Well, they were looking for a girls basketball coach. So they found somebody experienced, but coach Thomas had a good friend that was a high school principal in Belle Plaine. And he said, you need to hire this kid from Luther college. So off I go to Belle Plaine interview, go through the two hour interview. The superintendent says, I'm going to ask you some coaching questions. I thought, yes, I'm going to kill this part of the interview. I'm going to be a baseball coach. End of the interview, the superintendent says, Kent, I'll give you a call in a couple of days. We'll let you know if uh, you get the job. Two days later, I'm back at home with my mom and dad. I get the call. He said, Kent, how would you like to be our high school business education teacher? And I also have some coaching. How would you like to be our junior high girls volleyball coach? Oh, I was crushed. I, I'd never played volleyball. I'd never watched it. I knew nothing about volleyball. But I had my mom and dad in the background saying, take the job, move out of the house. You need to start making some money. So off I go to Bell Plain. I read books. I watched videos. I ended up being the varsity girls volleyball coach at Bell Plain for 13 years and absolutely loved it. 1995 was probably my, one of my best teams, and we got beaten in the state semifinals at U.S. Cellular Center, and um, just wonderful experience. So actually, it was volleyball that uh, led me back to baseball. So 
I can tell you that story if you want to hear that one. Oh, absolutely. And I've heard it a couple of times doing my research, but definitely our audience will get a kick out of it. How did volleyball get you an introduction to Coach Van Scoy in Norway? Well, in, you know, I started volleyball in the fall of 85, and it was the fall of 1989. My Bell Plain volleyball team started getting to be pretty good. We were starting getting ranked in the top 20 in the state, top 10. And we won our first round of district tournaments on a Monday night. We beat HLV, Victor, Iowa. And on Tuesday night, Norway was playing Mount Vernon at Norway High School Gym. We were going to play the winners for the district championship on Thursday night. So, you know, me being that young coach, I thought I was going to get a scouting report and I was going to just give us the best chance to win Belle Plaine's first district championship. So I walk into the Norway gym, start heading up the bleachers, and up in the corner, I saw a man, and I knew who it was. It was a legendary Norway coach, Jim Vanskoy. You know, Coach Vanskoy, I knew as a kid because I, I, I was born and raised on the big peach section of the, of the Des Moines Register, and I followed every All-State team, and I knew about this legendary Norway team. And so I was nervous, but I walked up and sat about six feet away from Coach Vanskoy, and during the volleyball match, I kept sliding closer and closer to get by coach. And finally, I got up with enough nerves and I just reached out and I said, Coach Vanskoy, I'm Kent Stock from Bell Plain. We ended up talking that entire night. And during that conversation, he said that he, his longtime assistant coach had resigned and he was looking for a new assistant coach. And again, all nervous. And I finally said, Coach Vanskoy, would you ever accept an application for your assistant coaching position from a guy from Bell Plain, And he goes all rough and gruff. He goes, absolutely. Send a letter to my athletic director. And I sat there. I said, well, who's your athletic director? He goes, me, Jim Vanskoy. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up getting crushed by Norway on Thursday night in the district championships. And a week later, he called me and he came over and I met with him at the Bell Plain Pizza Hut. We interviewed for three hours. He talked for two hours and 50 minutes. I maybe talked for 10 minutes. And at the end of the night, he said, how would you like to become my assistant coach? So small world. It's amazing how, you know, followed my love of baseball, got a volleyball job and it was vol fell in love with volleyball. To this day, I still love watching volleyball. Um, but it was volleyball then that led me back to baseball. Norway won that state title in 1990 with you as an assistant to coach Van Scoy. Just what do you remember about that season, which of course isn't the final season, but the penultimate season, the final before the final season. You know, in all truthfulness, I almost enjoyed that 90 season more than the 91 season. Um, kind of sounds weird, but as the assistant coach, I didn't feel all the pressure, you know, and I had a year to just sit and learn. And in the movie, you see me with a notepad, I would take notes and just watch you know, I just watched what coach did, you know, and, and would listen and watch him every move that he made, you know, and I did that as a kid, as I think back as a kid, I watched my coaches, maybe I knew down deep without even knowing it, that someday I'd be a coach, but I studied my own coaches and, you know, hopefully I had some great coaches and I had some not so great coaches as a kid that, you know, and I tried to mold myself to be everything that I wanted, but my biggest mentor was Jim Vanskoy. You know, that guy was amazing. He wasn't afraid to teach me. It, it was just, it was an amazing summer. And then coming out of that 90 season, eventually you get into the situation with Norway merging. Although what, what's that technical term they kept using? Merger's the short version of it. Yeah, it, it was like whole grade sharing is how it was yeah. going to start out as, you know, it's the the calm before the storm, you know, where we're, we're saying, yeah, you don't have a chance to, to go on your own again. You know, it started out that the year after the final season where the, the sports teams and the scores were, were recorded as Norway or Benton Norway, or that was kind of the name of the sports team. But obviously that's, that's gone away since then, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was a crazy time, a lot of pressure, but you know, I really didn't feel the, the pressure from the community. They had all their angst and animosity towards the school boards and the merger and everything else. They kind of let this rookie coach, Ken Stock, kind of left me alone, but they've known me for a year. You know, the movie kind of depicts some controversy between the, the 91 team and me, and there really wasn't that there. You know, Hollywood's got to put their embellishments on it and make some controversies. But, um, you know, I was, as an assistant coach, I was close with all those guys, you know. 
I was the one, you know, coach was leading the team and I was the one throwing batting practice, chatting with them. And, and so it made for a nice transition into that 91 season. And luckily I found a great assistant coach. He was a former student of mine at Bell Plain and he came on Cole Daly as my assistant coach. And, you know, he kind of did what I did the year before and he was really close, but it was internal pressure on myself. You know, I didn't want to be the guy that went down as the coach that didn't take him to the state tournament or didn't win that final state tournament. And there were many highs and lows that summer where I wasn't sure that it was even going to happen. Well, going back to just your relationship with the team, the fact that you had been the assistant the year before, when Coach Van Scoy gets that position in the Tires organization and the head coach spot is open, because you were there, were you kind of that home run candidate to be the head coach or was there a little bit of competition for that spot? Oh, I think there was a little bit of competition. I know there was, you know, they, it wasn't a given. I think coach wanted me to get the job, but you know, they, I think they did a statewide search. I think they just thought I was a volleyball coach from Bell Plain, you know, but they found out that they didn't have many candidates at all because, you know, they knew it was for only one season, but nobody wanted to uproot their family, move to Norway for one season and then be out of the job. So yeah, by default, you know, there I was and ready to do it and happily. Because I, I never left Bell Plain. I was still teaching and coaching in Bell Plain, coaching volleyball in Bell Plain and, and teaching at the same time. I would just drive the 20 miles to Norway back and forth um, for practices. So it worked out perfect that I happened to be right there. And I'm lucky. I'm blessed. You know, I was at the right place at the right time. So before getting into the postseason, what was that 91 team like and how did that season kind of ebb and flow heading into the later stages? You know, we started out a little slow. <clears throat> you know, I think the boys felt the pressure. They they saw the angst and animosity within the, the community and they kind of took that to the field. But, you know, we, we finally got to the point as the team, coaches and, and players alike, that you know, the baseball field was our respite. It was a place to go and get away from all the noise. And they started getting on a roll. You know, they really started, you know, I think we had one of the worst, we were like 32 and 12, I think was our record that year, which is the most losses hardly ever of, of by a Norway team, you know, but, but again, we played all the 4A schools and, you know, we, we'd lost a few starters from the year before, but we started getting on a roll and it came down to the, towards the end of the season and we were playing a doubleheader against Cedar Rapids Jefferson. And they had probably one of the best pitchers in the state that beat us one nothing in the, in the first game of the doubleheader. And the second game of the doubleheader, um, we came back and we ended up getting a triple that drove in a couple runs to kind of have a walk, had a walk-off win in that second game. And that kind of sprung us in to the postseason play. And it was amazing. Cedar Rapids Colonels at the good times roll. Get the MILB First Pitch app for iPhone and Android, the official app of Minor League Baseball and the Cedar Rapids Colonels. Set the Colonels as your favorite team, and you can order tickets, see upcoming promotions, and get the latest team news. Plus, get stats, scores, and watch all Colonels home games and select road games with an MILB TV subscription. Download the First Pitch app today, the official app of Minor League Baseball and the Colonels. Follow the Colonels on our social media platforms, including Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Hey, hey, Colonels, let the good times roll. Cedar Rapids Colonels, let the good times roll. For the movie, you pretty much just go right into the title game in 91, but were there any close calls along the way before that championship contest? That was a that's a great question. You know, we we had a couple blowouts in the first two rounds. You know, you had to win six games to get to state. So we had a couple blowouts the first three rounds. We got into like the sub first round of sub state and we were playing Marquette. I can't I, I'm terrible with memory, but we were playing at the, at the field in Clarence Loudon. And we weren't playing Clarence Loudon. It was at Bellevue Marquette. That's who I believe it was. We were in like the sixth or seventh inning and we were the home team. They had a runner on, we were up like by one run and they had a runner on. 
And all of a sudden they had this left-hand hitter cut, come up and he hit a bomb to right field down the line. And all of a sudden I look at the umpire and he goes, foul. I think they were even the away team. I can't remember for sure. But so we're, we go up and we ended up winning the game by one run. But after that ball was called foul, we, next pitch, we got an out. My right fielder comes in. He says, coach, that was fair. <laughs> so was kinda, so we, we snuck one in there. But then we went down and played the number one team in the state. You know, Burlington Notre Dame was the number one team all year. They had a record of like 31 and one. You know, we were 32 and 12, you know. But they obviously didn't have the schedule we had with, you know, the 4A schools. But um, so we were ranked number two. And we played down in Muscatine at a beautiful ballpark down in Muscatine. And, and uh, game started out close, but we ended up winning like, you know, nine to five and, and made it to the state tournament. The funny thing about that is at the beginning of the year, you know, being that young coach that I thought it was great, you know, we were going to set goals and, and I'm at the chalkboard setting, saying, okay, guys, give me some goals. The room went quiet. And all of a sudden I'm like, what's going on? I'm failing my first team meeting. And all of a sudden my center fielder, Eric Freeze, who's now the head softball coach out of Kirkwood, uh, was a baseball coach at UW-Platteville and a uh, great kid. He goes, coach, we only have one goal. That's to win Norway's 20th and final state championship. So you talk about pressure, you know. Well, we made it to state. We're driving back from Muscatine. Internally, I was just like elated. At least we made the state tournament. You know, back then only four teams made it, you know, to the, each class. And But the bus ride was quiet. There was no hooting and hollering in the bus because they hadn't accomplished their goal. Their goal wasn't to make it to the state tournament. Their goal was to win the state tournament. You're able to get the win in the semifinals, a 7-0 victory against Twin River Valley. And then it's Jilla Grove South Clay in the championship. This is the big part of the movie. Sean Astin comes in with his how do you want to be remembered speech. What was your speech like to that actual 91 team before that game? Yeah, you know, and there was some embellishment to that speech. But I did tell them that day, you know, if you, you know, you watch the movie, Sean talks about it, said, today you're playing for everyone who's ever worn a Norway jersey, and they're with you today. So ask yourself one question, how do you want to be remembered? I don't remember saying the how do you want to be remembered, but I do remember sitting in that locker room at Marshalltown uh, High School in the gym, in the locker room off the gym in the high school, and I just said to him, I said, the Mike Bodikers of the world, they're with you today. You know, anybody that's ever worn a Norway jersey, they're with you today. They're watching what's going on. So let's go out and let's do it for them. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Now, there's a lot about that championship game that does seem to ring true with what actually happened. And one of the things that is presented a little differently in the movie, but I was amazed to find a true story about it. It's about that time, top seven, when you're down to your last strike. And you have in the movie, I think it's Kevin Stewart, where his father got snuck in because they don't want him to have a heart attack again. And he comes up and gives that cheer and it is, exposes that Coach Van Scoy's there and everything. Well, I was doing my research at about that point in the actual championship game. There was a father of a player on that team that actually had a heart attack while that game was coming towards its potential conclusion. I get asked all the time, Chris, you know, was there really a, the bus driver of one of the dad of one of the drove the bus that had a heart attack? I said, yes, but it wasn't on the bus during that scene. When David Mickey Evans came in, David Mickey Evans is the, the director of the movie. David Mickey Evans, you probably don't know by name, everybody, but he's a writer and director of the movie Sandlot. He came in and he saw the true story of what really happened. And he goes, this is too unbelievable, even for Hollywood. So they moved the heart attack into the middle of this, you know, later in the sea, earlier in the season, you know, and then the dad shows up. What really happened is Kevin Stewart, who is, <laughs> it's not Kevin Stewart, but um, my first baseman was at bat. We were down three to two with two outs, two strikes, nobody on base. And Kyle Schmidt is his name, was up to bat. And, you know, we're down three to two and he's up to bat. He gets a big base. He gets a double and tight and double to put a runner on second base during that time. Then Brad Groth, my left fielder, steps up. He hits a double and ties the game. And we went into extra innings. We ended up winning the game, I think, four to three 
to win the Norway's 20th and final state championship. But after the game, you know, we're, all the boys and I are out on the field celebrating. I get a guy grabs me by the arm and says, Kent, you need to come with me. Kyle Schmidt's dad just had a heart attack, Francis Schmidt. So he had a heart attack during the state championship game when his son was at bat, you know, and during that time of that last inning, you know, he ended up living and made it through. Kyle was actually able to meet up with us for the dinner in Marshalltown afterwards. But probably the coolest story, because David Mickey Evans, you know, during all our years or years of getting prepared, prepared to do the movie, he knew that story. And so it was in early spring of 2006 when we were, when we were going to film in May, end of May, June of 2006. David Mickey Evans came about two or three months early to scout the area to find places where he wanted to do filming. And, and the very first day that the producers from Iowa took him to the Norway baseball diamond, there was a funeral procession going on at the Catholic church behind the ballpark. And it was Francis Schmidt's funeral. You talk about goosebumps, you know, how weird was that, that, you know, from 1991 to 2006, when David Mickey Evans shows up, that's when he had told, he did pass away then in 2006. So kind of cool, um, kind of weird in, in a way itself. One of the other things I noticed while trying to find out how the actual game happened. So like in the movie, you tie things up in the seventh, but in real life, you're the visiting team for that game. And I've read that South Clay actually loaded the bases bottom of seven. What do you remember about that? I'll tell you what, you know, we tied it up in the top of the seventh and they, like I said, loaded the bases. Sean Moss was my third baseman. He made two unbelievable defensive plays at third base that basically saved the game. Otherwise, South Clay would have would have gone on and, and won it in the bottom of the seventh. And when when we got off that seventh inning and we went into extra innings, it's almost like I had a piece. I knew how much those boys had been through all year that we were going to come out. And we, you know, we came out in that next inning and scored a bunch of runs, you know, and it, and we held them in the bottom of the eighth, kind of uneventful in the bottom of the eighth. But that bottom of the seventh was was scary. But Sean Moss came to save the day that one yeah and Sean was actually the guy who had the double that broke the tie top of the eighth got you to a 7-4 win how did he not make the all-tournament team yeah you know that's a crazy thing Sean and Sean is the most humble guy in the world to this day I still run into him all the time and kind of the running joke when is he was like the guy that was never noticed you know uh, maybe led the team in all these different categories, kind of like Brees Hall, you know, from Iowa State in football and doesn't get the Heisman. And, you know, always that unnoticed guy that just did everything steady, played great defense, hit the ball. He was, you know, one of my top pitchers and everything. And then he doesn't get the all-tournament team. It's kind of crazy. But, you know, I don't think – and now it's kind of a joke, in, you know, 20-some, 30-some years later. But – you know, he, he's a great kid, and it was, he deserved to be on that all-tournament team. As we transition towards the movie, I want to read the lead from the front sports page of the Cedar Rapids Gazette detailing that championship. Norway High School has displayed better baseball teams than its 1991 edition, and it has played better in many other state championship games than Saturdays. For nerve, grit, and satisfaction, however, the Tigers' last game may stand behind no other. Like so many small towns, Norway now has a building where a high school used to be. That school or wherever else the town chooses to show off its 20 state baseball title trophies closed effectively Saturday. Classes were let out for good several weeks ago, but the school didn't die until the last baseball out was recorded. When pitcher Sean Moss fielded a one hopper and threw to first baseman Kyle Schmidt for the final out of Norway's 7-4, eight-inning win over South Clay Saturday, an era ended. The Class 1A state title again belonged to the Tigers. It was a final win that seemed quite improbable at times, yet inevitable. And as anybody knowing that story that could read that lead would figure out, this story would make for a great movie. And of course, <laughs> eventually it did. So who kind of got the ball rolling on that? Well, uh, before that 91 season even started, I got a phone call. It wouldn't have been an email back then. I don't know. I got contacted by a guy by the name of Ken Fusen. He was a feature article writer for the Des Moines Register. You know, he didn't have anything to do with the sports department. He was a feature writer. 
he contacted Jim and said, you know, can I follow you around? Jim said, I'm not the coach anymore. It's Ken Stock. So Ken got a hold of me and Ken showed up at about every practice, a lot of practices. He went to about every baseball game and he would just do little snippet articles throughout the whole entire summer in the Des Moines Register. And the week before the state tournament, he did a big four page spread, not in the sports section. It was in the you know, feature article. And, you know, it talked about Norway baseball, the history behind it and what we were going through and all that. And then he continued to follow us, you know, through the state tournament. And after we won that final state tournament and the headline said Tinsel Town ending for Norway, you know, how prophetic those words were. But it was a guy by the name of Tony Wilson who lived in Des Moines and Tony had been following Ken Fusen's articles all summer. He had a good friend that he told this good friend, he said, if this team wins the state championship, I'm doing a movie over this story. So it was after we won the state championship, it was like August 2nd or 3rd or whatever, 91. It was about October. He reached out and found me and contacted me. And he said, hi, my name is Tony Wilson, movie producer from Des Moines. Well, I hung up on him. I thought it was some of my bell playing coaching buddies playing a trick on me or something. But, you know, he persevered. He called me back and he said, seriously, I want to do a movie over your story. And I said, Tony, this story isn't about me, Kent Stock. It's about Jim Vanskoy. It's about the, the all the ball players that have ever played for Norway. It's about all the 586 people that live in Norway. It's not about me. So eventually I introduced Tony to uh, Coach Vanskoy and it was January of 1992 that Jim and I signed a movie contract with Tony to produce a movie. You know, you think about that, 1992 is when we signed the contract. The movie's filmed in 2006. For many years, I never once thought that the movie would ever happen. Um, you know, I left Belle Plaine went to Linmar as a middle school principal and hadn't heard from Tony in a few years. This is 1998. And Tony reaches out in about 2000 and said, Hey, I'm still working on this. I just got some more work to do. I need to re up your contract. So I re-signed a new contract and that was for a dollar. He said, buy yourself two pops, you know, <laughs> with that money. Well, nobody else was coming calling for me. So, you know, I got my dollar and kept the contract going. Then about 2003, he had the very first script of the movie written. A guy by the name of Art Delisandro from Tampa, Florida, he hired him to write the first script. And, you know, it's a pretty good script. I thought it was awesome. You know, I, by then we had email. He emailed it to me and I read the whole thing and I thought, yeah, this is awesome. Well, nobody from Hollywood came calling. Um, fast forward eight scripts later, that's when David Mickey Evans, you know, the writer and director of Sandlot, he read it. And he said, I want to be the director for the final season. Sean Astin read the script and he said, I want to play Kent Stock. Well, then we got the momentum going. You got two big Hollywood names to attach to it. And that's, you know, it took us two years then from 2004 to finally where we produced it or filmed it in 2006. A couple of things about composition first, and you've touched on this a little bit earlier. Just what do you think about the final product you eventually got to in terms of being able to tell the story as it happened and be at least true to what happened, if not literally to what happened versus the kind of embellishments and things you have to do either to kind of get it to Hollywood in the first place or, you know, things like the love angle between Sean Astin and Rachel Lee Cook and those things, right. you know, just trying to reach out to different parts of an audience to get as many people as possible interested in something like this. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like they gave me script control Probably not 100%, but every script that came out, they would have me read it. I'd kind of read it through my mom's lens, you know, would my mom approve of this, you know? And and so I was totally comfortable. The very first script was 100% true, you know? Hollywood wasn't crawling Craven to do that movie. You know, fast forward eight scripts later, it was probably about 70% true, 30% Hollywood embellishment. The embellishments to me that I read in the script didn't take away from the true message uh, of that season. You know, it had to have the love angle. I wasn't, you know, heck, I, 
I, I wasn't married, you know, I, but I did have, you know, Sean Aston when he fell in love with Rachel Lee Cook, you know, I did have to tell him and show him, here's how you would, I would have kissed, you know, Rachel Lee Cook, you know, when they do the big kissing scene. But, you know, so my, my wife, Kurt, my wife right now, she gets asked all, all the time, I, I, I didn't know you were an attorney. She goes, I didn't even know Kent in 1991. <laughs> so, you know. But nothing, nothing in their embellishments or their rewrites or anything that I thought took away from anything or made anybody look bad or, you know, it, it was okay with me. And on a second composition note, how important was it where you have a movie that's about Iowa family and community where I'm looking through the credits and obviously you and Coach Van Scoy and Mike Boddicker are helping as baseball consultants for the film. You have Iowa native, one of the probably biggest actors out of Iowa and Tom Arnold, who's in this. You have Sean Astin Powers Booth who have their own family members in this. Your wife actually has a credit for helping to supply the horse for the scene leading up yeah. to the cemetery. Yeah. And there's all these different aspects and the entire thing is filmed in Iowa, a lot at Norway and a lot at the Colonel's ballpark, you know, reflecting back to the beginning of this question, like 15 minutes ago, it seems, you know, how big is it not just having a story that's about all this stuff, but a story that's made with all these aspects to it as well. Financially, it was a bad decision for them to do that. Um, because they could have taken this whole thing and went to Canada and filmed it there and got all these movie credits and all this stuff. They could have taken it to Georgia and done it a lot cheaper. But it was very important because the, the founder and the guy behind the dream was from Iowa. He wanted to film it here. And what makes me feel so good about it, you know, I'm doing motivational speaking, speaking across the you know, country now, but in the Midwest, I don't know how many times when I speak in Iowa, at least one person comes up to me afterwards and says, I was an extra in your movie. And I tell you what, that makes me feel so good that so many people in this state of Iowa, which I've been born, I was born and raised, loved it, won't, won't leave, you know, they were able to be a part of something pretty cool. You know, the producers of my movie then afterwards, they went to the state legislature and Chet Culver was a governor and they got passed to be able to film and get movie credits here in Iowa. But obviously some people took advantage of that and ruined that, so now we don't have that again. But, you know, it was really neat to do everything right here in the state of Iowa. And especially, you know, a lot of the stuff happens at Norway's actual field, so I know that's gotta be a big part. I wasn't with the Colonels at the time. I mean, heck, I was still in high school when this movie came out. So how big was it having that partnership with the Colonels and kind of that work to be able to have those state championship scenes at your ballpark to give you know, those 90, 91 title games, the little extra gravitas compared to say, if you had done it at Marshalltown or field, exactly like what Marshalltown's field looked like. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't thank the colonels and that their board of directors and everybody that I wasn't in on the negotiations of being able to use it. But I tell you what, the colonel staff and the president at the time, you know, they went above and beyond to accommodate us um, to use that field. I think that the, producers and David Mickey Evans, a director, it would have been neat to do it in Marshalltown, but number one, it would have cost a lot. You're moving a city, you know, a film crew is like a city. When we move from site to site, you're moving a city uh, to another, and it would have been costly to go to Marshalltown. But number two, I think in the back of their mind, they thought of Hoosiers, you know? You play, Hickory plays all those games in those little small town gyms, and they go to the state championship playing the big city school, and they're in a big basketball stadium. So what the Colonel Stadium, Veterans Memorial Stadium provided for us was that huge Hoosiers aspect of it to give us that, like you said, the gravitas of, you know, you've played on these little small fields all year, and now you're at the Mecca, the glory of that state championship, and there you are. And what a beautiful stadium that is, that the Colonel's ballpark where they play in, you know, perfect game field, whatever. It's just an awesome thing for this community. And of course, that iteration of the ballpark wasn't around. They were still in the old Veterans Memorial Stadium in 91 when the story happened. And it's, I think, great that the movie came as it did because that new ballpark only came out in 2002. So it was still pretty new and certainly from a Hollywood standpoint as well, you know, having the setup with actual clubhouses and different things of that nature is probably better for the production than just doing another thing in another high school field, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, that place has special meaning to me, especially the ballpark previous to this new iteration. 
when I was in college, 1981-82 season at Waldorf Junior College, hit a home run against Kirkwood in the old Veterans Memorial Stadium. So it brought back a lot of great memories for me, too. Support the home team and shop the Colonel's official team store, the Bim Ritter Diamond Shop. Get all of your authentic Colonel's apparel, including caps, t-shirts, novelties, and more. There's no better place than the Colonel's to entertain clients, be social with coworkers, or just party at the park. Visit colonels.com to learn about all of the ways groups party with the Colonel's. Everybody, everybody, everybody knows when you're at the the good times roll. Hey, hey, colonels, let the good times roll. Cedar Rapids colonels, let the good times roll. Obviously, there was a lot of really good acting within the movie, but if you had to pick between Sean Astin as you and Powers Booth as Jim Van Scoy, which one of those you think you like the most out of the final season? Well, you know, I'm biased. I'm going to pick Sean. You know, he did a great job, but love Powers Booth. You talk about, we, we, we were blessed with a lot of, you know, down to earth actors, Hollywood actors that portrayed in this movie. You know, some of the ones that had the biggest egos, they weren't the, the, the pop, you know, the quote high flute or the, you know, it wasn't the Sean Astin's of the world. It wasn't Powers Booth, you know, it wasn't Jimmy Gammons. It was some of the young kid actors that kind of like more flouty. Yeah, I'm an actor, whatever, you know, but it was pretty cool. But, you know, Sean is down to earth. He married a Midwestern farm girl, you know, from Indiana. So she keeps him grounded. Powers Booth, you know, lives in Texas, had a ranch, you know, he's, he's just a good cigar smoking guy who's since passed away. But Jimmy Gammons, I don't know if you remember him from major leagues, you know, he's like, yeah, he was amazing. That guy could sit and hold an audience by the hour. You know, he would, we, they would force him to do major league quotes, you know, he made hit like may run like maze or whatever, you know, <laughs> he'd go through those little things. He's just, he was just a, a ranch guy in, from Kentucky that had horses. And, you know, we were blessed with just down to earth guys. One of the neatest scenes every day on the first, as a new Hollywood actor would show up on set, I would always go up to him and greet him and say, Hey, thanks for coming to Iowa and, and help tell my story. And they, <laughs> to a T, they would all say, no, thank you. You know, we're just glad to be here. There was one person who wasn't as receiving. It was Tom Arnold. The very first day we were filming a farm scene in Solon and he shows up and he's got his entourage with him. Well, his entourage was all of his relatives, you know, from Iowa. <laughs> so I go up to him and I said, Hey Tom, thanks for being here in Iowa to film this scene and whatever. And he goes, yeah, well, okay, thanks. It's kind of blows me <laughs> off. It wasn't a big deal. You know, an hour later, he had called Jonesy's when they had the Jonesy's restaurant in Solon. He ordered up like a hundred big tenderloins and fed the whole entire Holly, you know, the, you know, cast and crew and the, you know, everybody with Jonesy's tenderloins. And then two months later, like it was in January or January of uh, 2007, we went out for a cast and crew screening and we had to do some voiceover work. And Tom Arnold was out there that day and he was the most genuine down to earth guy thanking me. And so it was just funny. His, his mind was on, I want to get as many Port Jonesy's tenderloins <laughs> out to the movie set as I can. It's like tenderloin. Yep. He's an Iowa guy. All right. Yeah. And nobody from Hollywood, what's this breaded thing, you know, but they all <laughs> loved them. <laughs> They'd never heard of tenderloins. All right. Uh, I definitely want to ask what your favorite part of the movie is. As obvious as the how do you want to be remembered scene is, leaving that off the list, what would be maybe that top two or top three in terms of favorite scenes in the final season? So number one, I mean, this is uh, goosebumps just talking about it, is when that final run scored and Sean Astin is walking kind of off of the third base coaching box. He looks up to Coach Vanskoy and, and Powers Booth and Sean kind of dot their caps to each other. You know, it just brings a tear to my eye every time that I see it. Um, 
because that's true. That's kind of the relationship that Jim and I had. And we do to this day, you know, we meet for breakfast, you know, once a month before COVID, you know, we, and I just had that much respect for him that David Mickey Evans film, you know, shooting that scene, showing the two of them, you know, kind of looking at each other with respect, doffing their cap, just hit home. Greatest scene in the movie, hands down. Probably the second one is, is kind of a little self-serving, but during that whole summer, everybody talked about, you know, getting a cameo in the movie. You know, Coach Vansko and I, we were working so hard behind the scenes, scripting plays. You know, we, we, worked, we worked the whole time. So we never had a cameo. And so people would ask me, are you going to get a cameo? I said, no, it's, I don't care. I don't care to have one. You know, a lot of the producers got their own cameo in the movie and things like that. Well, we finished filming like July 2nd. David Mickey Evans goes back to Hollywood. And when he gets back to Hollywood, he starts cutting, editing, putting the movie together. And in January, he called and he said, Kent, I want you. No, it was in October he called me. And he said, I've got the first cut of the film put together. He said, I want you and Coach Vanskoy, bring your wife's come to Hollywood, and I want you to see it for the very first time. So the four of us flew out there. We went to some screening room. Uh, Sean Aston was there. You know, we just had all the producers, David Mickey Evans. We're in a little dark room, you know, size of a big kitchen, big screen. And we're watching the movie, and I'm loving it. It's doing great. Gets down to that, you know, final game, and the game's over. And as it cuts away, it cuts to a real life version from 1991 uh, KGA interview with me after the game. And so my cameo was actually uh, footage from that 91 season. I just broke down bawling. I mean, I was just like tears running down my face. The movie ends, it's dark in the room. I stand up and somehow David, Mickey Evans and I bumped into each other and just landed in this big, huge hug and, you know, so that was self-serving, but it was just cool because I didn't know it was going to happen, you know, and how he cut that and put that in was amazing. Yeah. I mean, if I had to go personally, if you take how do you want to be remembered at, I basically go with a tie between the infield scene at Kennedy and the trophy thing at the end. Like part of it, I'm a sucker for good things set to the right music. And so right. you get the infield to big league. And that was a big thing because, like I mentioned before, I was in high school when the movie came out. And so that song from the movie was part of our infield mix at Waverly Shell Rock High School my senior year, which is a oh, really cool thing. Awesome. And they still have at least a cover of the song for the Waverly Shell Rock games now, which is awesome. And then yeah. you get Alex Band with Coming Home at the End and you see all the trophies. And that seemed like a big thing to me, especially as I was rewatching it the other night. It's one thing to know that a school has won 20 state championships, but you just see them in a row and the music's kind of swelling and you get to those final slates talking about the real life. And I mean, that is just such an emotional, inspirational high to end that movie on. And it's just so fantastic. Yeah. And Alex Band did a great job with writing that song just for that scene. Um, Nathan Wang was the one, the orchestra that put all the music for the rest of the movie. You know, you talk about talent. They showed him the movie. And as he's watching the movie, you know, his mind works and he starts writing all the pieces for every scene. And oh my gosh, that's an amazing talent to be able to do that. The movie is the final season. The book, Heading for Home, My Journey from Little League to Hollywood, written by Ken Stock with Ken Fuson, who you mentioned earlier. And then your website, kenstock.com, and like you, I think, mentioned before, you've done some motivational speaking. You know, are you at a point, you know, certainly the last year plus has been a little difficult because of COVID-19, but whether it's virtually or anything else, are you still able to get out and talk with different groups and different communities about your story and give those motivational talks? Yeah, obviously, I was stranded in Las Vegas on March 12th, 13th, whatever, at a speaking engagement in, in Las Vegas on a Tuesday, I think it was March 17th. I got there Friday midnight of fr Thursday the 12th into Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th at about noon Vegas time, uh, the president gets on and announces all this and all the issues going on. That afternoon, the guy who booked me for the speaking engagement in Las Vegas said the whole uh, conference has been canceled. We're not having it. So I'm in Vegas, brought my wife and two daughters along. Vegas is closing down and 
we scrambled to get home, ended up doing it virtually to 2,500 people across the United States. Um, that was great. But I haven't had a speaking engagement since then. You know, I was in the in the heyday. I was speaking 40 times to 50 times a year. Last probably five years, I've been speaking 25 to 30 times a year. So it's kind of been dry right now. Um, but I just booked two speaking engagements this week for one in uh, one virtually in in April, uh, one live in uh, June, and one live in July. So people are starting to come around thinking that we can do this. Um, they're trusting the process, trusting the vaccine, and you know I'm ready to go. I, I I didn't realize how much I miss speaking until it was taken away from me over these last 10 months. You know, it's not a, a talk about baseball, you know, it's telling my story about a kid who had a dream and wanted to be a professional baseball player and following that path in life. And, you know, through a curvy, windy road that you end up coaching volleyball and you follow your dream and it takes you in different ways to persevering and, and, thinking about how do you want to be remembered. And the um, majority of my speaking engagements are to statewide associations, uh, nationwide associations, corporations who have two, three-day conferences who want somebody that's non-industry. You know, they have their non-industry speakers come in. I'm kind of the non-industry, I don't say motivational. It's hard to motivate people, more inspirational. I inspire them to motivate themselves. That's a great way to end this conversation too. A little bit of inspiration at the very yeah. end. Of course, talking about a very inspirational story this entire time. Ken Stock, thank you so much for your time. Good luck to you and all the endeavors you have coming up in this 2021 year. And of course, I don't know who all is going to be able to do something, but it does make sense that this is now 30 years after that final season that hopefully this is a, a nice year for anybody and anybody out there that wants to commemorate it because that was an incredible story and the movie and everything does a great job of trying to tell that story about Norway and Iowa and everything else to the world. Chris, thank you for what you do. I know you're following your passion and following your dreams. Keep following them. You're going to be, you may be uh, in the St. Louis Cardinals booth someday, huh? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind any major league booth. Growing up as a Cubs fan, a Cardinals job would be kind of an interesting end to the story, but I wouldn't be yep. complaining at that point. You, you know, Harry Carey started out at KMOX in St. Louis in the booth and ended up Cubs. So, you know, it's possible. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Anything is possible. Well, yeah. thanks again for joining us and take Thank care. You. Thanks. See ya. Cedar Rapids Colonels at the Good Times Road. This has been All Ears, the official podcast of the Cedar Rapids Colonels. This podcast was created by the Cedar Rapids Colonels and edited by Metro Studios. Logo created by Brandon Vacco and the Cedar Rapids Colonels. I'm your host, Chris Klanon Schultz. Thank you for listening. Hey, hey, Colonels, let the good times roll. Cedar Rapids Colonels, let the good times roll.